Welcome back to Murder Under the Midnight Sun, your favorite Alaskan true crime podcast. I'm coming to you from a very cold Friday night, huddled up in a pile of blankets. It's around 16 degrees outside, and it feels awful. The sun set at 4.15, and we are entering that time of year where it's just nonstop cold and darkness. But on the plus side, that means... I'll be indoors a lot and doing some true crime podcasting, so I guess somebody benefits from it. Paul Stavangord was born in 1951, and he seemed to be a bad seed right from the start. He had behavioral issues from a young age and was expelled from school. He'd also had some major anger issues, and he just didn't abide by authorities or rules. As could be expected, he began a life of crime in his teens, after his family moved to the tiny town of Seward, Alaska, which had only around 1,800 residents at the time. He became a regular thief and was continuously getting busted for breaking and entering into other people's houses. In 1966, at the tender age of 15, he took his crimes to a whole new level when he stole a car and led a high-speed chase through the streets of Anchorage. After a few years in youth incarceration, he was released and almost immediately caught robbing a liquor store. He just couldn't seem to stay out of trouble or detention centers. By age 20, he had already served over five years in a juvenile detention center, off and on throughout his teens. At the age of 20 years old, He and a couple of friends that were both around the ages of 19 and 20 decided to stage an armed robbery of a bank in Seward, and they even took a hostage during the robbery. Now, anyone that knows anything about Seward would probably think it seems like a bad idea to try to rob a bank there. It is literally at the end of one highway from Anchorage, and that's the only way in or out. It's a very small town nestled right up against the mountains and right on the ocean. So there's not that many places to hide and not that many options to escape. However, Paul and his friends had theoretically thought this through. They'd set up camp way up in the mountains and planned to escape up the mountain and hide out until the heat was off. However, the $150,000 that they made off with ended up being far heavier than they expected, and they were unable to carry it up the mountain, so they had to hide it, and it was found by their pursuers not too long later. After a couple of days of struggling through the mountains with no money to show for it, the group decided to split up and made their way back into Seward. In a town of 1800, they weren't able to blend in very well, And since they were being pursued by approximately 25 law enforcement officials, they were promptly arrested. They were all charged with armed robbery and sentenced to six years in prison, which to me seems a little light. And Stavangord got on on parole a mere four years later. It was now 1975, and Stavangord was in his mid-20s. After the botched bank robbery and his time in prison, he actually took a pretty long break from his life of crime. 
He got a real job with the railroad and even got married. He and his wife relocated to the tiny community of Chalitna. To call Chalitna a town would even be a stretch. It's actually more so just a railroad stop named after one of the rivers in the area. I honestly couldn't even find a population estimate for the area. The people that live full-time there are the type that are fine with being nearly completely disconnected from society. The nearest actual town is Talkeetna, which is 40 miles away and has a humble population in the 800s. The people that have homes in Chalitna have to bring all necessities in themselves either on foot or on a four-wheeler since there are no roads and no nearby stores. There's a train that comes through and stops once a day to drop people off or pick them up to take them out of there. Otherwise, residents can park on the highway and use their ATVs to get to their cabins. For those of you that don't know, that's an all-terrain vehicle, like a four-wheeler. I don't know what they call it in other countries. Stavon Dord and his wife had a child, and they really thrived in their small life in this remote community. Paul got really into woodworking and handcrafts and was adept at making small instruments like flutes that he also learned how to play. They lived there together happily for over a decade, living the simple life very close to the way that hunters and trappers would have lived a hundred years ago in Alaska. Paul was the kind of guy that was really into seeking out new ideas and teaching himself new things. After a while, he had gotten into exploring other religions and learning about them, and he seemed to settle on Buddhism as his religion of choice. He was incredibly smart, but had his head in the clouds a bit too often, and wasn't really the best provider or father, since he ended up leaving his railroad job to do his craft-making full-time. After a really long time living without running water or electricity, his wife finally urged them to move a bit closer to civilization so that their children didn't have to be homeschooled for their entire school careers. They had had their daughter in the late 70s and a son in 1984. He obliged her, and they built a cabin in a place called Trapper Creek, which was a bit closer to larger communities. After struggling with the relationship for a long time, Paul's wife finally decided to throw in the towel and they got divorced in the early 90s. After a couple of years of moving around, Paul ended up moving back to Chalitna by himself. And to everyone that knew him, he seemed to be just another guy with dreams of being an old school mountain man, and he was a bit of a hippie. No one that knew him seemed to sense a dark side to him or the potential for violence. That is, until Memorial Weekend in 1997, when his neighbors went missing. Rick Beery and Debbie Rehor were a married couple in their 40s who lived full-time in Big Lake, about 100 miles south of Chalitna. However, they had a cabin in Chalitna where they loved to get away for a weekend and just enjoy the peace and quiet of the great outdoors. The two had been together about a decade and everyone that knew them described them as having this instant, palpable connection, basically from the first time they met. Debbie had even convinced Vietnam vet Rick to change his original plan of being a lifelong bachelor. The large ex-Navy man and the tiny redhead 
must have made an interesting couple. But when it works, it works. They had really only met due to happenstance. She had actually been from Colorado, but ended up in Alaska due to her brother living there. She'd wanted to escape a bad relationship and had moved to Alaska with her small child in the late 70s. By 1997, the couple was happy and settled in their life together. Her son was 19 and off on his own, and the two were already daydreaming about a retirement that included living full-time in their Chalitna cabin. They went to their cabin often and had a pair of ATVs, which they used to travel through the several miles of wilderness to get to it. However, they had the bad luck of having Paul Stabenjord as their neighbor. Granted, when I say neighbor, he was still a mile away. But living in that sort of lifestyle, you sort of want the person living closest to you to be someone that you respect and trust. Rick and Debbie neither liked nor trusted Paul Stabenjord. Rick would often notice small things going missing from his property and suspected Paul as the culprit, since... It wasn't exactly a large queue of suspects way out there. On the Tuesday after Memorial Day weekend in 1997, Debbie's brother Don, who lived in Wasilla, which is very close to her home in Big Lake, got a call from her work saying that she had never shown up that day. That was completely unlike Debbie, who was extremely reliable and had worked at the same company for several years. Don almost immediately was starting to get a bad vibe. He knew that Debbie and Rick had gone to Chalitna for the long Memorial Day weekend and was worried they may have had a bad bear encounter or some sort of accident. He contacted Rick's work and, with a sinking feeling, was informed that Rick hadn't shown up that day either. He just knew something bad had happened. Like many brothers, he felt the need to look out for his sister, even if she was 40 and married. He took the journey to their cabin to check on them and found the couple's two dogs there, as well as food and drinks sitting out, as though they had got up and walked out without taking anything with them, or putting anything away. It was obvious the dogs had been left inside for quite a while, as they had gone to the bathroom many times on the carpet, which was not normal for them, and they were also acting agitated and nervous. Don began to search around the cabin and the woods around there, but... He was only able to find Rick's four-wheeler, which was wrecked in a nearby creek. He was becoming extremely anxious and quickly decided to get the state troopers involved. The troopers showed up and began to search the area. Not long into their search, they made a grim discovery. Rick's body was in the vicinity of his four-wheeler. He was laying face down and had been shot once in the back of the head from not very far away. It looked as though he had been mercilessly executed without even a chance to defend himself. As the large Vietnam vet that he was, he probably would have put up a massive fight if he saw someone coming towards him. State troopers spread out and began to search a wider perimeter out from the cabin. They ran into some utilities workers that told the police they had heard gunshots coming from a campsite deep in the woods. The troopers managed to track down the person who had been camping there, and it was a 21-year-old man who said he was only camping there because he had gotten lost, and 
He'd actually ended up camping not very far away from Rick's body without seeing it. He did admit that he had seen the four-wheeler in the creek, but didn't see anyone else around. He also admitted that he had rummaged around in a bag that was on the four-wheeler and stolen a few items of food. His story seemed extremely suspicious, but they didn't have much evidence to go on at the time. Troopers continued to search the area, but as the days went on, any hope of finding Debbie alive were quickly waning. Finally, after a week of searching, they found her body. While Rick had been left basically out in the open, seeming to have been shot with little to no warning, Debbie was buried beneath some branches, was only partially clothed, and appeared to have been sexually assaulted. She, too, had been shot once in the head. It was a terrible end to the search. No one understood who could do anything like this to a woman, who was universally described as being a complete and total sweetheart. Troopers were able to find DNA evidence from whoever had attacked her, and at that point were able to conclusively eliminate the young camper as a suspect. After that, though, they were a bit hamstrung with very few leads, so they decided to do some old-fashioned canvassing of the area and knocked on several doors to ask questions. A couple of local residents mentioned Paul Stavangeord as someone they should talk to. They knew that Rick and Debbie disliked him and had accused him of stealing from them. Debbie's brother Don had actually seen him when he had initially arrived in the area to look for his sister. And Paul claimed he had not seen them in a little bit. Later, Don saw him creeping around in the woods with a gun, but he claimed also just to be looking for the couple. The encounter gave Don such bad vibes that he slept in his sister's cabin with a pistol that night, just waiting for Paul to try to come inside. When police went to question Paul, he was very evasive and had a bit of a vague alibi. He claimed to have driven quite a ways up the highway towards Fairbanks and mentioned several places he had stopped along the way for gas and food. However, not a single employee at these locations remembered seeing him on the day in question, and he could not provide any receipts. Nor would he allow troopers to search his property or take a DNA sample. Troopers were quickly able to secure a court order for his DNA, but after collecting it, Paul had been spotted disappearing into the woods on Debbie's ATV, which he had kept hidden on his property. The DNA testing was fast-tracked and quickly found to be a match. An arrest warrant was issued and the manhunt was on. Debbie's ATV was eventually found wrecked in the woods, so they knew that Paul was in the wilderness, most likely on foot. They created flyers of him and distributed them all the way down the highway to Canada, 350 miles away. He was an experienced woodsman, but this was grizzly bear country, so troopers on the hunt were extra wary of finding either a two-legged or four-legged predator. Grizzly bears in that area of Alaska can get up to 600 pounds, and their very name conjures up images of a grizzly animal attack. Officers on ground patrol in those woods were heavily loaded up with weapons as though they were heading into battle. Paul had a couple things on his side 
including his mountain man skills, as well as the season. It was June, the beginning of summer, which involved relatively mild weather and extremely long daylight hours, which could only help him in his escape through the woods. While Stavangeord's relatives and friends were completely dumbstruck at the accusations that he could be a murderer, they also decided to get him a top defense lawyer just in case. They all rallied together and tried to get the word out to Paul that he should just give himself up peacefully. They believed in him and loved him, and just wanted this to end without anyone else dying. While the manhunt was ongoing, police searched his cabin and property for any clues. There, they discovered the true depths of his madness. First, they found a handwritten script for his alibi, which he must have been practicing. They also found journals which detailed a fictional romance with Debbie, which were written as though Paul truly believed they were true. He wrote about the day of the murders, claiming that he and Debbie had a romantic rendezvous, which included him playing his wooden flute for her, then they'd had sex right on the forest floor. He wrote that Rick had discovered them together, and Paul had shot Rick in self-defense. Debbie's death was explained away as an accident caused by the crossfire of the two men shooting at each other. It was completed utter BS. The journals also made it obvious just how much of a narcissist he was, and essentially thought he was better than most other people because of his mountain man lifestyle and his skills as a woodworker and musician. While the manhunt was ongoing, Debbie's brother Don, who was obviously devastated, was waiting at Paul's cabin with a gun, just in case he decided to show back up. Don is truly the brother that all women deserve to have. During this time, America's Most Wanted was actually in Alaska and planning to do a story on Paul. However, on July 12th, he called his new lawyer and agreed to give himself up peacefully. Though he had been arrested, America's Most Wanted ran his story anyway, as though he was still on the run. Paul would end up revealing details of his time spent on the run in the woods. It turned out he'd been getting around on a freight train, a canoe, the ATV, and ended up somehow catching rides to both Fairbanks and Anchorage. He also claimed to have spent some time at his own cabin without being discovered. He would go on trial in the spring of 1998 for the two murders and the rape of Debbie. His defense was that he killed Rick in self-defense after Rick threatened him because he found him having sex with his wife, Debbie. And during the argument, Rick shot Debbie and Paul panicked and decided to hide the body. During the trial, Paul asked if he could play his handmade flute to better express himself. And I found two conflicting accounts, one saying that he did play it, but the other saying that the judge denied him playing it. Either way, it sounds ridiculous. After a two-month-long trial, he was convicted and sentenced to 198 years in prison for the two counts of murder. His lawyer ended up abandoning ship prior to the sentencing, and his new public defender valiantly tried to get him a new trial to no avail. Paul would continue to cause problems while in prison. He's like one of those people that just complains about absolutely everything. 
In 2011, he filed a suit claiming that he had been denied a kosher diet and a prayer shawl which were necessary for his religion. He was claiming to be a Buddhist monk at this point. Initially, the court denied his claim, stating that those items were not linked to the Buddhist religion, but in 2015, they reversed their decision. I could not find information on whether he got them or not. Now, I don't know about you, but the vibe I get from this guy is like a wannabe small-time Charles Manson. A criminal that disguises himself as a non-violent spiritual hippie type. But these types of people can only conceal their dark desires for so long. By all accounts, Rick and Debbie were wonderful people, and they left behind many family members who loved them dearly. Their ashes were scattered together at a fishing hole where they love to go together.